Welcome to Beyond the Bench, the podcast produced by the North Carolina Judicial College at the UNC School of Government. I'm your host, Jeff Welty, director of the North Carolina Judicial College and a faculty member here at the school. Our goal is to bring you interesting interviews with people who work in or with the court system, including judges, lawyers, academics, and others. This first season of Beyond the Bench focuses on criminal justice. On today's show, we have School of Government faculty member Jamie Markham interviewing Anne Presythe, the Director of Community Corrections with the Department of Public Safety. Be sure to stay tuned at the end of the podcast to hear a bit about what we have in store for next season. Enjoy the interview. Hi, this is Jamie Markham at the UNC School of Government, uh, and I'm here today with Anne Presythe, who is the Director of Community Corrections in North Carolina. That means she's in charge of the 1,900 or so probation officers who supervise probation and post-release supervision and parole in North Carolina. There are over 100,000 people on supervision of some form in the state, and probation has obviously been an area of a lot of change in North Carolina legally with with justice reinvestment and uh, and other recent changes. So I'm really I'm excited to have Anne uh, with us here today to to talk with us about what those changes mean, what they mean to the court system. So, Anne, I'm really happy you could join us. Welcome. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Great. So I wanted to start just with um, a little bit of background about your journey in community corrections. You you started as a probation officer. Uh, what was that like back uh, back when you were doing that work? I started as an officer in 1988, and that was back when we had one pair of handcuffs for the unit. We weren't carrying firearms. When I went out in the field, I had no body armor. I had my pen and a piece of paper and directions. Where, um, where were you in the state doing that work? I started out in Duplin County, which is a small rural county in eastern North Carolina. You know, when, when people came in for their visit, you asked the standard four questions. Are you living in the same place? Are you working in the same place? Have you been in any new trouble? And have you made a payment? Okay, great. I'll see you in 30 days. And we saw everybody in 30 days. We did the same thing for every offender. And then we had home contacts. We had to keep 15% of the caseload as high risk. Didn't know who was high risk necessarily, but it was just, that was the way we operated. Did you enjoy the work? What, what... I loved being a probation officer. You got to work with offenders. You got to help people. Uh, people needed our help, but I got to work with judges, I worked with clerks, you worked with law enforcement, you worked with families. Uh, it was, it's a great job because you touch so many different people in the community, all for the purpose of trying to help folks who truly need help. I mean, it's a, it was a great job. I really, really enjoyed it. And I still carry that same passion today even as director. So people sometimes say that that probation officers are part law enforcement officer and, you know, part social worker, that they have to have, you know, different aspects of both of those professions in their work. But it's kind of a spectrum. Some officers are more, you know, more like a police officer than, than, police officer than others. Where, where did you see yourself on that, on that spectrum? Um. 
I think I went both ways, literally. And when I talk with new officers coming out, we talk about the pendulum swinging back and forth and that part of it is control and then part of it is treatment. And as an officer, I can say that I did that because there were times when you definitely had to take the bull by the horns and arrest an offender for whatever it was that they did. And then there were times when you knew that what they needed was inpatient treatment or substance abuse treatment. They needed something, but jail wasn't what they needed or prison wasn't what they needed. So you had to be able to be flexible and recognize what was the best approach at that particular time. So you go from being an officer in, in Duplin County. How many years did you? Ten. Ten years in the field uh, as an officer. And then, and then you start to make transition to, into administration, right? Into, um, the computer system came along, Opus. Okay. Opus, which is, so I know many of our court uh, system folks are familiar with, with ACES, with uh, the court system, computer system, or CSIS. The correction system has has opus, and it's you know, all the uh, records of prisoners and probationers are kept in there. Um, so you were doing work with that. I did. I sort of latched onto that and became a trainer for the system, and realized that when I came back to the field and used opus, I realized that the data that was being put in the system was the same data that management was using to understand what was happening in their county as well as what we were reporting to the legislature and those two things were not the same so it became important that officers understand what they were putting in the system and how it was being used as well as managers understanding how to manage their district using data and we're very in tune to that today because we've automated so much more than what we had back then. So those that skill set of of training on Opus and and uh, knowing how to sort of get the most out of the computer systems that you have that's something that's carried forward into your work as director. I mean, you, you know that to this day people say what Opus stands for. When I do some training with probation officers, they'll say it stands for Only Precise Understand System. <laughs> I, I don't know what it actually stands for. It's like Offender... Offender Population public. Unified System. Yeah, yeah, but everybody knows what it really stands for. I get a little passionate about topics. That's, so. you know, that that's why, you're, you know, that's why you have the corner office today. So I know then eventually you went on to do uh, some work with the Interstate Compact. It's sort of the you know, a often misunderstood area of probation and parole did that work. And then eventually you became the director in, in 2013, 13. right? Mm-hmm. And correct me if I'm wrong, you're the first woman to be director of community corrections. So that's uh, congratulations. And I know we were actually just talking about this earlier today. As you look at all the, the officers in, in the division, there more, more than half are are women. Are so mm-hmm. I, I didn't know that. I mean, I certainly knew just in doing trainings with, with probation officers that there were certainly many women, but I didn't know that, that over half were. So that's interesting. Uh, the biggest change in probation since structured sentencing in 1994 is justice reinvestment. How, how would you describe things generally in, in a post-justice reinvestment world? 
We have done we've done a considerable amount of training and nearly every conversation we have comes back to some aspect of justice reinvestment. I would like to think that everybody is in that world, but I think the reality is that we keep working toward that and we encourage staff to embrace it fully. There are challenges with it along the way, but we still try to work through and continue that discussion and hope that through training, we're touching all of the players in the process because it's hard if probation's the only one that's talking about justice reinvestment and how to use the tools and what they mean in our line of work and then expecting everybody else in the process to understand what we're doing. There's two CRV centers. What tell, tell us a little bit more about those and what's going on there. So the CRV centers were a new initiative and really a joint initiative between prisons and community corrections. It was our first venture to combine staff, sort of a model that is confinement, yet it's introducing a lot of the community supervision programming that we would do. So it's a behavior modification center is what we're calling them. And it, so if I'm a probationer and I'm ordered to CRV and I go, so the, there's, there's the one in Lumberton mm-hmm. and there's one in Morganton, right? right? And I go there, how is life different for me there than it would have been if I had been revoked and been sent to prison? Okay, so life at the CRV is not optional. It's mandatory. Everybody participates in programming. They have jobs. They're on a schedule. There are incentives and consequences or rewards and sanctions, however you choose to look at it. People are incentivized to do more, and then there are still sanctions that they're all held accountable for. When you go to prison, it's not that same structure in every prison. So it's kind of like explaining to the offender, if you're on supervision in the community and you're doing the things that the probation officer is working with you to complete, that's great. If you're not, you can go to the CRV, be away from your family for 90 days, and still do those same things. They do community gardening projects, growing food, and then give back to the community. So there's a form of community service, if you will. There's substance abuse education. It's not full treatment, but it's education, mandatory. There are computer classes that are being taught. There's cognitive behavioral interventions, so thinking for a change, some sort of cognitive restructuring, which is mandatory. And most of our moderate to high-risk offenders should be attending some type of program like that anyway. So there's there's a lot that goes on during that 90-day period that is mandatory that they have to participate in. We have probation officers on site that do regular face-to-face contacts with the offenders while they're there. Um, but then we also have case managers that came from the prison system that help provide some of the day-to-day structure, but they're also involved in the incentive and sanctioning process as well. So the offenders are consistently being treated, meaning they're talked to and worked with and town hall meetings. So everybody on the facility is moving in the same direction.
So it sounds like there is maybe more of a partnership between community corrections and prisons there than you'd find in sort of a regular prison where it's really removed from from the community. You talked a little bit earlier about, you know, back when you were doing your work in Duplin County, sort of you'd have office visits. It was just the four questions you would ask. It, it, my sense is I hear you and probation officers talk about what you do nowadays, this sort of evidence-based supervision practices. It's it's a very different interaction between officers and offenders, and it's much more in-depth. How do those conversations go now, and, and and are you really able to get through to people? You know, I saw some case plans this past week, and it was interesting. <clears throat> when I was an officer, when we did a case plan, it was three lines that were part of a narrative, and it was a regurgitation of pay court indebtedness and supervision fee, attend treatment, remain infraction-free. Those were pretty much the standards, and that was the case plan, and that's what we worked toward. Since I've been an officer in the field, we have worked hard to change so that the case plan is the actual map for how the offender completes supervision. We have officers that are really getting so, so much farther beyond uh, the conditions of supervision. The conditions of supervision get us started. Those are things that the court has imposed and we will monitor those. But part of what the probation officer is trying to figure out is why isn't the offender complying with the conditions? So if we can get to the root of why they're not doing those things, then maybe we can help address those and then subsequently the offender will begin to comply with the conditions. Because oftentimes there are underlying reasons of why somebody's not going to treatment or not completing community service. And if all we ever do is tell them, you need to go see Jane Doe and do 24 hours of community service, but we haven't thought about transportation or um, uh, is the person able to do community service. Mental health is something that we're beginning to understand a lot more about. So through our assessment process, officers are asking a lot of information that in the past we never asked. We didn't dig that deep. But the information is really helping us to understand the person so that we can begin to put a much better plan together for them to help them be successful. Because the judge put them on probation for a reason. Our job is to help them be successful on probation. I know one of the things I've heard you talk about is trying to focus more on on positive aspects of probation or behavior that, you know, in the past, it was all very much focused on, like you said, sort of just started with the judgment and making sure the person was complying with the judgment and responding to non-compliance if necessary. But now, uh, and, th and I guess this is sort of a trend nationally, is just instead of strictly focusing on responses to non-compliance to find ways to reward compliance, what are some of the rewards in the probation officer's toolkit? What are some of the things you've seen? Yeah, our staff, our probation officers have done an amazing job being creative with developing incentives for offenders. We have things like the MVP offenders, the 
MVP offender for the month and they'll do a bulletin board and then put signs on their desk that says, ask me how you can be the MVP of the month. And it starts the conversation and the officer explains what it takes to become that. We have staff that have developed incentive closets and when offenders reach a certain level of completion or compliance, they get to go to the incentive closet and can pick things that range from toiletry items to snacks or a drink. I mean, it's the key is finding out what is the person interested in, what motivates the offender, and then we try to develop incentives. I can think of one example where an officer was giving certificates to an offender and not really sure that the certificates meant anything to the offender, and the offender took them and didn't really show a lot of appreciation or impact. The officer down the road did a warrantless search at the residence, and when they went to the bedroom, the offender had taken all of those certificates that he had received and had taped them to his bedroom wall. So impactful to the officer to see, because they had no clue that that small of a recognition meant that much to that particular person. Right. Uh, The cynic in me, you know, is sort of wondering, like, you know, these, this is a serious business. This is not, you know, this is not middle school. This is not going to the dentist office where you just get into the, you know, treasure box or whatever my <laughs> kids call it. Exactly. But, but, and so, and, and so you don't want to, you know, you don't want to trivialize it or make it into a game, but at the same time, um, many of the people you're supervising have just never, um, maybe never had that kind of feedback. They haven't. And so just to not, uh, it may not work with everybody. I mean, I'm no uh, psych- psychiatrist or psychologist, but but you know, at least anecdotally, you have. But a as lot a of- parent of four boys, you reward each child differently because right. they don't all value the same thing as being most important. Right. Right. And so, that's what it is with, with our offenders, too. Right. And it's, I mean, it is just sort of indicative of a, a broader approach right. to things that sort of, again, kind of coming back to that spectrum of, you know, you're not, you're not social workers, but that there's more to it than law enforcement alone. Oh, that's really, that's really interesting. So, you know, judges don't have to delegate authority. They can choose not to delegate it. Does that, does that happen? Do you see a lot of judgments where the judge has checked that box and chosen not to delegate the authority? It's not that we see a lot of judgments, but we are aware that there are, it's a small number, but there are still a few judges that are hesitant to delegate authority. Okay. But we continue to talk with them and show them the data that we gather. And I believe I've seen a few judges who their confidence in probation has increased over the quality of violation hearings. And so they're feeling better about delegating authority. Okay. Um, well, that I mean, that kind of leads me to a broader question, trying to explain uh, the risk needs assessment process that you do, you know, during the first 60 days of anybody's probation supervision, the officer is going to do a risk assessment. You call it the offender traits inventory revised, right? right? The OTIR. And you, then you also do these evaluations of the 
what you call the needs assessment of things that are going along, you know, going on in the offender's life. Those assessments then result in the probationer being put into one of five supervision levels and sort of the level ones are, you know, the riskiest, neediest offenders. And those are the ones I think you're sort of most worried about. And then right. the low end of the spectrum is the level fives who are not likely to reoffend. And, you know, there's a sense the best thing you can do with them is really not do much at all. You don't want to over-supervise them and, and sort of make them worse. My, my question is, you know, do, do you want judges coming into this world with you? We do want the judges to ask. I would love for judges to ask officers about the assessment information that they have. I, I was a probation officer, and I am a firm believer today, 28 years later, that a probation officer, what they think is important is what a judge thinks is important. And if a judge were to begin to ask about assessment information, it would, it would heighten awareness for that probation officer and it would begin to give validity to the probation officer that the court thinks this information is important and it could lend I mean it could lead to a great dialogue about the offender you know I've learned a lot over the years and so one of the things you begin to wonder is what exactly is the purpose for imposing certain conditions you know what is, what is it that everybody wants the outcome to be? And if you understand where that individual is and the challenges that they have, then I think you can better tailor the conditions or the response to violations. So if the judge understands everything the probation officer has already done and the reasons why, and we have all that documented in our case plan, I think the judge would get a much bigger picture about what's been going on with that offender and the violations would be in context of the whole supervision. But you're so I guess so part of what you're talking about there is the information you would be able to provide at a at a violation hearing because for the most part in North Carolina you're you know we don't do a lot of pre-sentence investigations. Right. The statutory authority is there for the judge to order a probation officer to do it in any case, felony or misdemeanor. But the fact of the matter is we just we just don't do it. So what you're principally talking about is later in the case, after those first 60 days, when it comes back to court, that's when you could help shape it Correct. even more. So, but what do you say to a judge at sentencing that's not necessarily going to have that yet? Really not knowing anything about the offender, you're, you really want a a plain judgment because a lot of the, the the conditions that a judge could impose on the front end are tools that the probation officer can impose through delegated authority during the course of supervision. If we do our first 60 days of supervision, that puts somebody in a bucket about where to begin to supervise. But then that person's behavior from that point forward is what drives how we respond. Which tools do we need to use? Is it incentive or is it a consequence? And that's where you begin to use those tools to shape that supervision. If they get all those conditions on the front end of supervision, they don't really mean anything because it's just something the offender has to do. And then it makes it harder to respond when they're not doing those conditions. 
And the probation officer has to prioritize which ones can they do first and which one's more important. So okay. it, it makes it complicated. Right. And in some cases, they're trying to do it all at one time. And if you have the offender who's employed, trying to do community service, substance abuse classes, and CDI all at the same time, it just makes it very, very difficult. So you've actually started to kind of answer the next question I was going to ask you, which which I think is is a tough question because I know you don't want to, you know, pick any fights with anybody wearing a robe. But, you know, are there things that judges do that, you know, that, that they say in their judgments? I mean, what called it to mind is you're sort of talking about this probationary judgment that's just sort of loaded down with lots of different things all at once. When a probation officer gets that judgment and they get back to the office, do they, you know, slam it down on the table and say, Judge so-and-so did it again. This is, you know, he set him up to fail. Go ahead. Never. Never no, would we no, These words have never been uttered <laughs> never. in a probation office. No, I mean, again, I, I don't, I mean, this is, to me, this is... This is what we're here to talk about, and it's not an easy conversation, but better to have it now. It's not one you can really have in the courtroom, you know, excuse me, Your Honor, uh, that just doesn't work for me, um, <laughs> is, is not, you know, where you want to head with it. But are there things that come to mind aside from the just sort of, it's just too much all at once, or just we're not sure we need that yet? Let us figure out what makes this person tick, and then we'll do it because we can do it, or if you want us to bring it back to you... In the form of a modification, okay. that can be done too. Other um, things come to mind? I'm going to keep asking until you... Certainly. <laughs> I mean, you know, those oddball conditions like monitor medication, you it's know, to make to sure that they're taking their medication. That's very difficult. That's something that the probation officer is going to try to do, especially in a mental health case okay. anyway. Okay. But... How do you do that? And then when they don't, you violate them and bring them back to court. I'm, I'm just not sure that's ultimately what you're after. We, we talked a little bit earlier about pre-sentence investigations and how they're not generally done. There's a pilot underway in North Carolina, right, right here actually in Orange and Chatham, to do pre-sentence investigations, not, not in every single case, but in, in certain categories of cases where the judge might have a choice between prison and probation. So for felonies, right, and where there might be a person falls in a place on the sentencing grid where it could go active, could go probation. Can, can you tell us a little bit more about that About that pilot? I am really excited about that pilot. I have been very pleased with the transformation, if you will. Judge Bedour and his team have done a tremendous job learning about the work that's that's done in that first 60 days and how to use it in each of their specific roles. So whether it's the public defender or a lawyer or the DA or the judge, all three pieces of that puzzle have learned to get out of that information what can help them understand that particular offender the most. So whether it's the conditions that the judge is imposing or the position that the the DA may take, what I've heard from them is that they learned a lot more about that individual and it seemed to give them a better sense of what their long-term outcome should be. So we're essentially doing 
the first 60 days of supervision. We have five mandatory contacts. It involves talking with the employer, the family, the offender, doing a drug screen. They can get a task assessment prior to um, sentencing if that's needed. It's just a tremendous opportunity for the offender to begin to understand what's ahead of him or her, but then for us to see, so what does it look like we need to do for this particular offender? Identifying mental health issues on the front end has been amazing. And that, I think, is one of the pieces that we traditionally have overlooked. And we're seeing that mental health plays a real role in somebody's success if we address it. If we don't, it plays a real role in somebody's failure. Right. I have a, a, a tough question for you, maybe. Do you miss the Duplin County days? Is it, I mean, I, I've, I've talked to you about this before. I know that you're honored to be the director and that it's work that I know is meaningful and important to you. But I've also heard you sort of talk wistfully about your time as an officer. Do you think, do you think it was a, a different time for probation, a simpler time? I mean, you sort of talk about being out in the field before officers are carrying firearms. Is that what, what's, what's left of that, of that world in today's community corrections? You know, I can say, honestly, every week, there are probably two or three times every week, I think, what would I be like as an officer today? Would I be able to do the job? Because it is, in theory, it's the same job, but because of how far advanced we are with technology and the tools, and it's so much more complex now. It's more exciting to me now because of all the tools that are available, the worksheets and the role-playing and the, the things that we ask our officers to do. But at the same time, I worry about them. I worry about them. I worry about their safety because it's a different type of offender that they're supervising in the community. It is a more dangerous type offender in the community. I admire the work that they do because... It's just so complex, but it's it changes every day. Just yesterday, I was in Johnston County, and an officer, I asked him what he liked most about the job. He said, it's because it changes every day. He said, I, I know what I'm supposed to do, but when I come in, there's going to be something else that comes up. There's always something going on, or they can get out in the field. And I mean, it's... I do, I do miss it because I think it would be fun to go back and do some of this work that we're doing now. I would love to have some of these worksheets. It would have guided a conversation for me, probably been a little more succinct in, at times, but, but it's good. But the thing I love about being a director is that I can continue to reinforce all the good things that our officers do because they're doing yeoman's work. They're doing excellent work every single day and they don't get credit for the good work that they do and they do so much more of that than the things that really make the papers. I wish we could get that word out there more but they know, I hope they know that I've got their back and I'm going to stand up and we're going to work through whatever comes up. I mean it's just that's what we have to do. We're dealing with human nature and it's not always predictable. Right, right. 
Well, and I really appreciate you taking the time to come over here to Chapel Hill and spend time with us to share your personal story and sort of your vision as the director with with our audience and and you know I think to some extent with your staff who I know I know you you know make an effort to get out in the field when you can but just it's it's a big uh, group of of officers and don't have a chance to to talk with everybody so I really appreciate you taking the time just thank you for coming in well I appreciate your interest you're a tremendous resource for us in community corrections and I know my staff appreciates all the questions that they can ask you and the responses that you give them and so we're we're proud to be partners. All right. Thanks a lot. Thank you. This is Jeff Welty back to wrap things up. That concludes this episode of Beyond the Bench. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed it, and if you did, be sure to subscribe to this podcast in iTunes or Stitcher, where you can listen to all of our podcast episodes. Most importantly, leave us a review. Positive feedback helps other people find out about our show. As I mentioned at the top of the show, this is the last episode in our first season. Our second season will be hosted by my colleague, Sarah De Pasquale, and will focus on how the courts handle issues involving children and families. I hope to return for a future season, but I know you'll enjoy Sarah's energy and personality. If you have any topics you think we should cover or people you think should be interviewed here on Beyond the Bench, pitch us. We'd love to hear from you. You can email me at welty at sog.unc.edu or producer Danielle Rivenbark at danielp at sog.unc.edu. Finally, more information about the show is available on the podcast website, podcast.sog.unc.edu. This is your host, Jeff Welty. Podcast adjourned.